Two crees in a pod. Two crees in a pod. Natani means. Yeah. Let's go. They pushed us to this point, frustrations of a common man Manifest the destiny, preach and pledge the promised land I'm stuck between taking my journey, live with no honor Like what's the use of my kids, can't taste clean water A child born into a world, revolution's not a choice Fighting to be heard, so we make them hear our voice Remember ancestors, anguish, lightning in our veins Hear it in a language when they are kissing for the rain I am product of people that persevere, persecution Paint me so creator sees me if I go out shooting Experience our pain when our women disappear daily Anxious to be angry, pacifists might hate me Trolls on the internet constantly trying to bait me We move in silence, cover of the night Learning from the wolves in the forest Tracking enemies in the woods Reincarnations of warriors riding for salvation Or are we false prophets when we submit to temptation? Colonization is a hell of a drug We all seem to go crazy when we fall in love I said colonization is a hell of a drug We all seem to go crazy when we fall in love I said Welcome to Two Crees in a Pod. I biggest sees Nitsigasun, My name is Amber Dion, and I am from the Kihiwan Cree Nation here in Treaty 6 Territory. I'm a mother, a social worker, and assistant professor with McEwen University School of Social Work, and I'm joined by my lovely co-host. Welcome, my name is Terry Sungens. I'm from Salt Lake Cree Nation, and I'm the Director of Indigenous Initiatives in Kiowatsin at McEwen University. We are so honored that you chose to join us today. Thank you uh, for joining us, Michael. Um, We're going to do a quick intro into our episode. So this is episode number three. Um, And so we're really very thankful to have uh, Dr. Michael Yellowbird joining us on Two Crees in a Pod. Um, A little bit or some background uh, of understanding of our relationship or the relationship in Michael's work that we have. Uh, So Terry and I are both um, super pleased because your work has really impacted our work and it has informed our work, our research Mm -hmm. um, and the ways that we practice within our classrooms or in our communities. And so, again, we're really excited to have Michael join us today. We're not going to go into depth uh, with Michael's bio because you can find his bio on both our Facebook and our Instagram accounts. And so you can read more about uh, Dr. Michael Yellowbird on our social media. Um, and again, we just want to welcome you, uh, Michael. Uh, you're joined by two aunties today. <laughs> Wonderful. Auntie Terry and Auntie Amber. Um, so uh, we want to ask you to introduce yourself uh, in whichever way you would like to, Michael. Okay. Well, let me just uh, start by uh, saying that I'm really glad to be here on Treaty One Territory. Um, and um, to be uh, where I am right now in this time, because uh, we're, you know, I think I'm in a pretty good place with my family here, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of good folks around us uh, from Treaty One here, um, and um, and I am actually from uh, the states. Um, I'm a member of the three affiliated tribes: the Mandan, Hidatsa, and the Arikara. <clears throat> I am uh, from a little place called White Shield, which is a small little reservation community on our, our reservation. Um, the three affiliated tribes, uh, and I am Rikara and Hidatsa. I, um, I am also uh, now currently the dean and a professor in the 
faculty of social work at the University of Manitoba. I've been here next month will be my first full year of uh, serving this position. So um, I, um, so yeah, so maybe I'll just say that much, you know, so. Awesome. Yeah. yeah and I think that throughout our, our interview with you, we'll hear more about uh, who you are. And so I think how we would like to start this episode is by talking about and thinking about your work uh, that again, Terry and I have uh, researched and read and listened to. And one of the things that we are definitely interested in hearing about and understanding more about, and uh, we've talked uh, about how, and Michael, you've said this, that how we have an understanding of colonization through political understanding, um, but we don't often have a um, understanding of colonization in relation to our bodies. And so can you give us uh, some... Uh, just some more understanding of what that means? Sure. Uh, yeah, thanks. Great question. Um, so a lot of my uh, current work over the last probably five or 10 years um, has been focusing on colonization um, at, at a much um, deeper level than I've studied it before. I've had to go outside of social work to begin to look at the life sciences and especially the new research that's kind of come out in, in genetic science as well as telomere science and and um, all these, uh, and neuroscience too as well. And there's a, a good bit of uh, research called cultural neuroscience, which has really sort of um, gotten my attention because what, what I've learned a lot from uh, looking outside of our discipline of social work into in this sort of multidisciplinary uh, um, focus is that there are so many things that we didn't know as social work scholars and social workers and, and uh, students. And, and, and that stuff has really been valuable for me to kind of begin to kind of nail down how we've been going about trying to heal people and not understanding in some ways that there are some really important genetic, cultural genetic differences uh, in people that probably haven't been dress, addressed very well. So I'm, my goal is to try to get some of that information out. So what I'm talking about is that chronic stress from colonialism, for example, you know, uh -huh. is, is, has a real deep impact on our bodies. The idea we understand colonialism is subjugation and invasion and those kinds of things. Along with that subjugation, um, and, and uh, it brings new uh, circumstances. And that new circumstances can be uh, cha big changes in our geography, which, mm -hmm. which is very important, you know, uh, because for long periods of time, indigenous people have habitated certain, you know, ge geographical areas of, you know, Turtle Island or wherever they've right. been on the planet. And, and so what they've developed, not only is an association with the land, but they've also developed an association with the microbes in those places. So it gets down right. to that microbial level that we harbor in, in ourselves um, different uh, microbial, well, they call them human microbiome populations. And so when you look, start looking at that, the hunter-gatherer populations that are still fairly stable around the world, you get an idea of why they don't have diabetes. They don't have yeah. um, um, anxiety or depression disorders. They don't have obesity. And they don't, you know, uh, suffer from this high level of self-inflicted um, 
trauma, right? Suicide. Right. Well, you know, people, folks are starting to look at that because we think, you know, the great circle of life is outside of us, but we also understand the great circle of life is inside of us. So mm-hmm. what colonization does is push people like that off their land who've had relationships with the land for thousands of years and they have this sort of mutual sort of expression and an interchange with the, the microbes in that territory, the foods, the way they relate, the waters that they drink and all those kinds of things. Once you disturb those populations, you set into motion the perfect storm for a lot of disease. And that's just one aspect that I've, I'm kind of looking at now. We know that chronic stress also, you know, um, creates all these disruptions in the body, but in the brain in particular, yes. right? There's, there's something um, I call enzymatic colonization or molecular colonization because stress and trauma in the brain, for example, this here's... here's um, can, can um, release or flood the brain with this, this enzyme. It's mm-hmm. called protein kinase C. But all you have to know is this, that, that what chronic stress does is it breaks down parts of your brain called dendritic spines. And dendrit- dendritic spines are just, think of your own spine. that It's got a, a centerpiece, a center pole, and then little spines moving out. And um, those are in the neurons in, in the front of the brain. So what happens is those begin to get destroyed by a lot of colonialism, fear, anxiety disorders. And what it does then is begins to affect our memory and our learning and our ability. And then and, uh, when we see um, that happening, we, we have a lot of uh, issues then with, with, um, with you know, re- um, learning in school, remembering important things and, and that sort of thing. Now, the difference is if we were to say, let's decolonize that enzymatic stress right the enzyme in our brain that was that was um, you know attacked by colonialism so what we would go and do to kind of restore those spines in our brain that that actually provide for us you know resilience against things like alzheimer's disease so these got to be healthy in our brain is that we go back and we do ceremony we dance we sing we tell traditional yeah. stories we begin to uh, again uh, stimulate the regrowth of these um, dendritic spines and increase their uh, density, right? And that's, and that's really important to remember is that they can repair when the stress and the colonialism is eliminated. That's why I think folks who are on this path to kind of saying, you know, we're, we're, we're approaching this um, using, you know, uh, traditional sort of approaches, right? We want to get back to the earth. We want to get back to the land, those kinds of things. Those are all really important, you know, um, uh, methods of decolonization. However, my thing to say is that it's not just one weekend on the land or like 20 minutes on, <laughs> yeah. on the land. It's got to be sustained time like our people did on the land. That's right. what's began, that, that's what begins to change, you know, the, the effects of colonization in our bodies and our brain. That's, that's just one part, you know, that's just one aspect. Of, and, I, and I could, you know, talk a lot more about that, but I'll, I'll say that much just to get folks to remember in the, in the front of our brain, we have these, um, uh, these little um, uh, structures called dendritic spines that look like our, like our spinal cord. And each one of those spines that kind of go out from the center pole are, um, are their, their receptors for um, learning and memory and all these important kinds of things that we do, um, those things get eliminated, you know, um, through stress, through colonialism, but they also go, get eliminated too when we don't practice our language, we don't sing our songs, we forget how the land feels. We, those uh, spines get eliminated. 
So you have a lot of indigenous people that are between accepting and being accepted into colonial society, and they're not back in their own society. And those are the ones that probably are suffering the most from, you know, the ravaging of those dendritic spines in their brain. So um, I, I really applaud all the, the scholars like yourselves that are moving things forward to uh, kind of recover this knowledge, because that's a very powerful form of decolonization of the brain. Yeah. Amazing. I, I think that I remember, Michael, quite a few years ago, actually. Uh, so Amber and I have worked with Blue Quills uh, University previously. We've also uh, went to school there. But I remember many years ago, I was in a class with late Vince Steinhauer, and he was sharing your work. And at that time, you know, we were we were very much within our within the school, very much connected in ceremony and learning about decolonization, disrupting colonial practices and violences. And so I remember that was the first time that I heard about your work and I was just blown away. And I was blown away because here he was sharing about how the brain was impacted through ceremony. And for me, it was, you know, we as Indigenous people know how it shifts us. We as Indigenous people know how it impacts us and changes the way we are in a way that is very hard to describe in words. Um, but then to see this research and to see this work and say, see, th this is what this, this all brings it together in a sense of how important it is uh, for us to connect back to ceremony, for us to connect back to language, for us to connect back to our ways and ensuring that we are resuming and not resuming, but I guess revitalizing having this indigenous resurgence, not just within our communities, but within our institutions as well. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, well, it was my pleasure. I mean, it's, it's uh, all my work has really been aimed at is the validation of our people's ceremonies our ways of life that, you know, it, during the periods of colonization, which are still ongoing, I might add, um, have been um, looked at as, you know, primitive as, you know, um, you know, just based upon suspicion and superstition and those kinds of things. But, you know, of course, how can cultures like ours survive, you know, these dramatic changes and, and, right. and, and be so healthy in the mind, body and spirit. Right. And we know that what, what, what folks do, were doing were things that were affecting not only their spirituality and their, their physical bodies, but they were affecting themselves at a very deep level. And this is what we know mm -hmm. now from cultural neuroscience. So we know that when they did these kinds of things that made them feel better or things that they, that, that where they sacrificed and, 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 and you know, they, they found things difficult when they entered into those states of, of doing those kinds of things. They were developing all kinds of uh, cognitive resilience in the brain, and, and as well as they were building the mitochondria in, in the cells of the body that, was gonna, that were going to help them live longer, healthier lives. So you can say that, you know, Native people found this, this level, um, this sort of sweet spot where the, they... Um, knew that, you know, to live in balance, as they say, meant that you had to have the good times with the bad times. Under colonialism, it's been a lot of bad times and very few good times. And that's that's right. been the shifting piece of, of all of this, why I think Indigenous people have been so, um, have suffered so much under colonialism. But, um, but yeah, right. so that's kind of been my aim is always to try to figure out, like, people did these things. And, they're, and, and, they're, and we know that there had to be something you know, to it. But now 
I've spent a lot of time looking at the Western science, you know, and, and a lot of it's very recent and saying, uh-huh, well, look at this. Well, wow, look at this. People actually, you know, are catching up with their science to what we knew at some point, right? right and that's, right. that's such a satisfying thing to find out. I mean, and I, and I, I, I'm so thankful that you, you've said this because uh, some of the things that Terry and I have heard you talk about in different talks or read about is uh, about, um, you know, how uh, Western science is, you know, innately, you know, racist um, because, and one of the things that we've talked about is, you know, that you can't measure mystery, right? It's really difficult to measure mystery. And I think that that's, one of the things that I've thought about, you know, especially working as a frontline social worker, but also within a Western institution as well, is that it's really difficult to describe to folks, you know, the what happens viscerally when you are in ceremony. And it's difficult to, I mean, you can't evidence base that. Uh, you can't uh, best practice that. Um, it is something that uh, you have to experience and that you have to uh, believe in, really, uh, in order for you to experience the visceral, uh, what happens to you viscerally when you are in ceremony. And I think that that's really important. And I'm so thankful that you you said that, because I think that looking at Western science, and I often use a story of my late grandmother, who, you know, in the recent work, when I was doing my uh, thesis when I was writing our capstone I was talking about trauma in the brain and I've been very interested in what happens in our brains and I remember looking at some work from uh, different uh, you know non-indigenous scholars about what they found in neuroscience and what how trauma impacts our brains and I remember reading a story about you know base what you just talked about that frontal uh, cortex or that piece of our brains that you know um is about decision-making, et cetera, and how there's a life rhythm that is developed in utero. And I remember when we were kids, we used to walk into my late Kukum's house and she would sit us on her lap and she would tap our backs and she would make a whistling sound in a, in a rhythm and she would rock us. And, you know, and I think when I was doing this research, I thought about my late grandmother and how she was, she was so smart. I mean, my grandmother was incredibly intelligent and she was creating life rhythm. Uh, for her grandchildren. Right, right. No, yeah. I, I think that's when you when you go back and you look at history, you know, and of of um, different you know our people and different tribes, you find out that you know um, you go back to Western science. I think the first myth of Western science, what makes it racist, is believes that it was the inventor, or, uh, or it was the precursor of all other sort of sciences, which is completely right. false. Right. You know, that's the whole idea. And I think that's something we've kind of gotten to as indigenous people into a binary, because a lot of things in Western science, especially like, you know, um, you know, uh, coal observation or, um, you know, even the steps of, of you know, um, of research um, are all found in cultures all over the world. A lot of the Western so-called Western science has been borrowed from all different parts of the world. Um, you know, so that's I think that's the first racist thing about it is that you know, it's, it's, um, you know, it, it, it considers itself the authority. And, and sometimes we, we accord it that Western science, right? But um, yeah. so it's claims that it is, you know, you know, the science is that indigenous people had science. That's pretty clear when you start looking at, you know, um, all of the different um, things that were going on in, in, on Turtle Island, you go down to Mesoamerica, there were so many different kinds of things that were going on. I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, 
technology. The Mayans had calendars that were, you know, the most accurate in the world. I believe it was the Mayans also right. too that um, uh, had come up, understood the concept of zero before Europeans even got close to that. Uh, they, along with the people in Mesopotamia and in, in Asia and China, I think were the first three groups to come up independently of the concept, you know, of zero. And then course you had you had the healing sciences that were all there you had a whole farm um, uh, um, uh, pharmacology and and all this um, uh, all these medicines that were used and now today a huge part of the western medicine is all derived from this indigenous knowledge um, you know and so uh-huh. you know you know look at the look at the inca people they you know they developed i think uh, 3000 different varieties of corn how did they do that right well, they had to they had to do that through yep. all without you know without lab coats and without grant grant funding and all those things. How did they do that, right? I mean, it's incredible what <laughs> right. what people were doing here. And I've written some about that in one of my books that's going to be coming out in October about you know what what did what did it look like before Europeans got here? What were people doing here? What were some many of the discoveries that were happening? And I think that's that's what social workers suffered from is they think they have to come in and social work our people because we don't have this knowledge. Right. But as we're seeing happening in the world today, what we understand now is that it's the systemic racism and the colonialism that persists that social work has to get a grip on. So they understand that, you know, it's mm-hmm. not like, you know, indigenous people have deficits. You know, it's not that at all. Right. It's that we're mismatched for the societies that that they that they have organized which are these predatory sorts of ways of life that, you know, if everyone were to consume like we are in the first world, we'd need, need three more planet Earths, right? So we, we, we know these right. kinds of things. So, you know, the complexity of life makes Western science only super, superficially able to kind of understand, you know, life in itself. And that's why I think what you're talking about is, yeah, we have our own, our own uh, experiences, right? Subjective experiences that are difficult to explain and if you, as you go back to look at it, indigenous people, they ask people, what, you, what was your experience? What was your experience? They don't say, no, there's one experience, you know, they don't do, or they don't do averages right. or something. And it's like, well, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's just like it's individual experience and it's treated in that way. So it's, it's kind of beyond, you know, that right. kind of Western science. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, Michael, do you want to just give me, um, share with us just some of the work more specifically around ceremony and the impact it has on the Sure, brain? yeah. Um, well, a lot of the work that, I, that I've been doing these days has, has a lot to do with, um, well, a lot of areas, first of all. It's, you know, um, what I'm focusing on these days are, I use the medicine wheel sort of as my sort of uh, framework. And when I look at... Um, you know, uh, ceremony in the brain, I think, you know, it's, it's not just the brain that's doing it. It's all these different things that are happening. So in my medicine wheel, if you, if you go to one quadrant, you know, the mind quadrant, it's a lot about neuroplasticity, right? How the brain changes its structure and function when you learn new things like new language, new songs, new ceremonies, new information, the brain changes. And as you, as you learn more and more of that, then uh, your brain changes more. There's more growth in areas and that sort of thing. When you think positive, there's more growth in certain particular parts of your brain. When you think negative, there's particular uh, growth in parts of the brain. And then the idea of neurogenesis is a big part of it. You know, when you're thinking about um, decolonization in the brain, neurogenesis is like genesis. It's like, you know, the origin or the growth of something. So the growth of new neurons in the brain. So I've looked at a number of different kinds of things that indigenous people have done uh, in, in the, in the, uh, 
in the past, and we still some of them do that today. I mean, that really um, help us decolonize the brain and the mind and our emotions and the trauma that we have. And I'll just kind of give you the quick list. One is, you know, running and movement is is really important. Mm -hmm. Dancing is is critically important because dancing raises levels of endocannabinoids and opi those are which are natural opioids in the in the brain. And, and uh, running also increases and, and protects us against depression because what it does is it, it begins mm -hmm. to sort of neutralize toxic um, um, uh, enzymes in the body. Singing also, you know, is something that's very powerful that raises endocannabinoids in the body, raises dopamine levels and serotonin levels. And believe it or not, sleep. Our circadian rhythms, as many yeah. people have been so changed and disrupted that, you know, we're not very far away from our ancestors that, you know, didn't have all these lights, but got up with the sun, you know, went to sleep when the sun went down. That, that's really huge. And earlier on, we were talking about laughter and humor, how important that is. Yeah. Well, in cultural neuroscience, there's even a gene that's been examined, you know, uh, by this uh, professor named Joan Chiao. Um, I believe she's at Western, Northwestern University um, in the States but has found that collectivist cultures have this particular gene called the serotonin transporter gene. And, and, and that particular yes. gene also expresses for laughter and humor. And so as I've been doing the research around it, I thought, wow, when I was reading about these particular 1636, there was a group of hunter gatherer Indians out um, in Eastern Canada who were talking to this priest, I forget his name at the moment. And uh, they were talking, they had been three days without food and this priest was suffering and he was writing down his journals how much he was suffering. And, and these uh, native uh, folks said to him, you know, smile once in a while, laugh once in a while, don't suffer like that. You know, see, we, we're like this all the time. We can be, you know, two, three days without food, but we don't cease to laugh and have humor. You know, we don't, we just, you know, right. basically we count coup on our hunger is what they're talking about. And they just keep on going. <laughs> and so then I was reading that. Then I came yeah. back to this, this uh, discovery of this particular uh, gene called uh, 5-H-T-T-L-P-R, which is a, a genetic variant that surprisingly, a lot of collectivist indigenous cultures have. And that's why I say, that's why Indians like to laugh so much, you know? I was just looking at Facebook the other day on this one called Res Humor and I was laughing my butt off because people are putting such crazy things on there. And, you know, <laughs> and so so that you know that's it. but but it is that's one of the things when, when you're thinking about how important you know healing is and how important you know uh, decolonizing the mind is laughter and humor and you can think about go here's here's where you get affected by colonization you take kids from their home you put them in residential schools and you beat them they're not going to laugh anymore they're not going to find much humor in that anymore right so in that in effect what you're doing is you're changing the epigenetic expression of this very powerful gene that coded for um, preventing uh, depression and anxiety disorders because if you have this particular gene research shows that we are more likely to have anxiety and depression disorders but People figured out right. how to firewall themselves away from this gene that would make us be more uh, apt to have depression and anxiety. And that would be to laugh and to laugh and to laugh and have yeah. humor and to find humor in everything. Right. And this is why you get back to the idea yeah. that some tribes had sacred clowns that would be around. Right. Yes. So, 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 so the yes. people, like, yep. they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew 
so so yeah. so these are just some of the things you know um that that uh, i do but if if we want to talk a little bit about um how it works on the brain things like mindfulness um and like meditation and prayer these mm-hmm. kind of really deep ceremonial practices that you do and and if you let's say you pray pray in your language every day and you you spend time focusing on you know um uh, you know being being out somewhere where it's it's really um a sacred place to be, then you begin to change different parts of your brain. If uh, I, I, I give a talk and I, I, I show a picture of one of my fellow tribesmen back in about 1903 or so, or four or five, can't remember the date of that. And, and he's sitting there in an earth lodge looking at these sacred pipes. And as he's looking at these pipes, um, you know, he, what, what happens to him is he's, he gazes on these sacred objects and when he sees the sacred objects and how much they mean to him and mean to the tribe, it activates particular parts of the brain. There's the, on the left side of the brain and the front of the brain, it's called the left prefrontal cortex, PFC, private first class, if you don't remember it, but PFC. When you, when you engage into things that make you feel happy and joy, and you look, at, you look at these sacred pipes, for example, or you look at the face of your children, or you look at a ceremony and smile, that part of the brain is going to activate. The more you do that in ceremony, the more you smile in a sweat lodge, the more you smile, you know, when you're when you're, you know, with people and you smile at trees, whatever, you're going to activate that part of the brain. Once that's activated over and over again for long periods of time, there's going to be a lot more activity in that that part of the brain. So Western science, again, with their brain imaging, has kind of concluded that this part of the brain is the part of the brain where happiness, joy, optimism, and feelings of well-being come from. The left prefrontal cortex, after all these brain images have been done uh, on the brain when people are put through these exercises. So you see why, you see why um, taking those things away from Native people was, was, was so hard on, on their brains, hard on their body, hard on their, their molecular structures hard on their on their um their feelings and of course left them very naked you know and nowhere nowhere to go so that's the thing is that when you embrace these things and you embrace these sacred you know things uh and now a lot of people do it now with christianity and you know that's you know that's what folks did when they migrated from um indigenous you know religion or spirituality to christian religion but but the difference is and i'll say this um because I was raised a Catholic boy years and years ago, and, um, is that a lot of those spiritual traditions are, are more predicated upon uh, uh, punishment and fear. They're not, they're right. not, it's not a God of love we're talking about, like indigenous people had. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a God of, you know, retribution, a critical God, a God that was distant from you. Mm-hmm. And when you look at most indigenous people, that part of the brain is going to activate because, and other parts of the brain are going to activate, compassion parts of the brain are going to activate because when, when people look at the trees, they look at the waters, they look at the clouds, they look at animals, they look at, you know, whatever it is they look at are their sacred objects. What they see there is beauty. What they see there is happiness. What they see there is goodness. And they see, if they believe in a creator, and, and like the old people used to, they believe that the creator is embodied in all these things. And that is one way that you begin to decolonize the brain is that when you, when you engage in that, you begin to change that uh, left prefrontal cortex. So. Right. right. And 
I mean, while you were talking, I don't know if, if you, you can see it. Terry and I right now. Every every time you would say something, we'd like raise our hands up and go, yes. Um, and we didn't want to interrupt you by saying yes. But, you know, you validated uh, so much of what, I think, again, Terry and I have really been trying to push within the institution that we both work at, that I that I definitely have been uh, putting at the forefront of the courses that I teach at McEwen. Um, and I think that what I, and again, I was just thinking about so many different things while you were talking and you talked about dancing specifically, and I'll, I'll share a quick story, a personal story um, that totally relates and our, our listeners uh, my hope is that when you when you hear Michael talk about these things and how you can relate it back to your own life and I think about my 15 year old daughter who had experienced some things that caused pain in her life and uh, she wanted to start dancing she wanted to uh, start dancing uh, fancy shawl and uh, as many folks know it's very expensive <laughs> you know beadwork as it should be uh, beadwork and and uh, all of the uh, hand-sewn uh, regalia is very expensive. And so before I invested in that, I actually sat down with my daughter because she would practice every day in our living room. And uh, I sat her down and I said to her, why do you want to dance? Like, what's what's motivating you to dance? And she looked at me and she said, and, and, and also a backstory in part of this is that, you know, my children and I have gone to therapy, you know, uh, for many years, we've, we've been in uh, talk therapy with, uh, you know, Western uh, psychologists and, and uh, um, yeah. And so when I asked my daughter, you know, why do you want to dance? And she said, because it mm -hmm. takes the pain away. And, and that was really all I needed to hear <laughs> to invest uh, the thousands of dollars to ensure that my daughter would uh, anything that helps alleviate pain uh, was important to me as a mother. And so thinking about you know, for our listeners, when you're when you're hearing these, uh, when you're hearing Michael talk, thinking about in, in what ways are we decolonizing our bodies? In what ways are we decolonizing our minds? And even just hearing your stories around smiling, you know, I mm -hmm. and I started smiling, thinking about like the times where I've been in ceremony, like you said, smiling and sweat, and like <laughs> in the dark, in the dark, every you know, you're smiling so big, and and then you cry and you smile and you laugh and you cry and. And I think that that's, again, that's super validating, not just to us, but to folks that are listening as well. So I, I really appreciate well, yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's the idea that, you know, we smile in the face gives, you know, the brain the signal that, you know, some things are something's going right or or that, you know, that you're in a place where it's safe. And there's, you know, smiling also releases a bit of dopamine, which is feel good, right? Serotonin, which right. is relaxation. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, smiling is, is, is a form of, you know, uh, recognition. It's a form of, you know, um, uh, feeling content, but it's also a form of reassurance that it's safe. Right. And, and, and you mentioned dancing mm -hmm. earlier, you know, there was an interesting study um, uh, done in 2018 in the frontiers of behavioral neuroscience. And, and they did this analysis on dancing and of course, what they call endocannabinoid. So if you think of endocannabinoid, just like cannabinoids, like marijuana, you know, releases uh, concentration. We have our own, say, marijuana in our brains. You know, um, you know that the body saw fit that if we needed these, we could draw upon these kinds of things, like your daughter said. And what endocannabinoids do, of course, is they are, you know, uh, these signaling messengers that, you know, uh, that are biochemically related to, of course, reducing pain, 
but they're also known to improve a person's memory, reduce feelings of stress and anxiety. Yes. Um, your memory gets better, protects your brain function. Of course, like I said, the reduction in pain. So it's not just reducing pain. There's all this kind of multiple kinds of things that are happening. And that's why many of these things have layer uh, uh, sort of overlap effects. One of them, for example, is intermittent fasting and running have the mm -hmm. same kind of things. They, mm -hmm. they help reduce stress, they improve mood, they enhance our memory, they protect our brain function, reduce pain. When you're fasting, it does that. When you're running, it does that. When you're sitting in a hot sweat lodge, when you're in ceremony for several days, you know, uh, you go through these same kinds of signaling processes that are happening in the brain. Endocannabinoid, you know, uh, are being released. Uh, um, uh, Adrenaline-like factors like cortisol are being reduced. So you're feeling better. And in fact, what your body's getting then is the signal to thrive rather than the signal to decay, right? So when you're mm -hmm. sitting there depressed, you're mm -hmm. feeling bad, and sometimes, you know, this is my, again, to any Western people that are listening that do therapy, you know, sitting down there and just doing therapy with indigenous people is, is not recommended. People should be moving. People should be engaged, right? There's a very, very different for many indigenous people evolutionary history where our genes co-evolved with our culture to move and to do these kinds of things. You know, and that's what keeps us um, insulated from Western depression. Um, when you look at Western um, um, culture, it's, it's more of a farming culture. It's been a farming culture longer. And so farming culture has spent a lot more time being sedentary. Our culture spent a lot of time moving around from trap line to trap line, from trading with this group to moving over here, all those kind of, and, you know, following the buffalo herds. And this hasn't been that long. We still have those genetic markers. And these are things that, you know, we've never considered in social work or considered in uh, clinical um, uh, psychology for that matter. And so what you're talking about, you know, really makes sense in terms of, of your daughter's dancing and, you know, uh, the resolution of pain because dancing does have this very, very powerful effect. And so does singing. In fact, singing may have an even more powerful yes. effect when a person really enjoys the song that they sing. In fact, that's what the study says. Singing was the most beneficial activity, you know, um, uh, in, in terms of uh, increasing this endocannabinoid, these pain killing, stress reducing, mood improving uh, concentrations in the, in the blood and in the brain. Right. Right. One of the things that I think that, you know, I, I'm, I'm taking notes here and I'm just writing down uh, words that you're sharing with us. And you talk about you talk about movement, you talk about dance, you talk about breath, you talk about song, you talk about sleep, you talk about meditation and prayer. And I think that, you know, it's it's Sundance season for us right now. And as, as we prepare to go into that Sundance Lodge, you know, all of these things are encompassed and we're not running in the lodge, but we are dancing, you know, and, and the songs are being sung and we are we are sharing in that breath when we are blowing on those eagle whistles and we have people in those spaces who are praying with us um, and we are still in, in other times when we aren't dancing. And so I think about, again, like it, it brings me back right away to, you know, when we think about our healing and the, and the healing that could happen and the repair that could happen within our lodges, um, Sundance encompasses all these different things that you've shared with us today. Um, so we're getting close to the, uh, we just want to 
wrap up here, but we want to make sure that we have some time for you, with, for you to share anything um, that you may want to share with our listeners or to social workers, educators. Yeah, out there I think, you know, one of the things that that's really important, I think, for the listeners and for, you know, um, social workers, any helping professions out there, I think it's it's we're, we've really entered into this new I, I feel like we have, you know, and that's what I do as a dean and a professor on my own faculty is that I try to introduce these things to uh, is that we've kind of entered into um, 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 we've kind of um, what do they call it gone back to the future, I guess. Right. So so that's where we're at. You know, I think yeah. um, what, what, what has what has been tried is to use all these Western approaches to kind of to do things in a particular kind of way. And in those frameworks, I think, are, are very many of them are very outdated. And that's why I think, you know, I see, you know, scholars trying to write things about now about the land and those kinds of things and so on. But I think the wisdom really comes in the stories and the songs of, of indigenous people. You may or may not believe that, but those are sometimes my first sources that I go to. I just finished writing an article about uh, with uh, co-authoring an article with uh, other folks from uh, the States and from um, and from New Zealand uh, about molecular decolonization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, 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 it was very clear to me that over and over and over again, I was writing about fasting, um, that indigenous people use fasting uh, as a form of survival, you know, when food uh, stocks got very depleted, but they also used it in spiritual ways to gain enlightenment. And it was, it was uh, something that, lo and behold, it's in their DNA, too. It's, it's, there's genetic... Um, there's genetic uh, markers or variants for that, you know, um, that we have and it, and it changes the expression. So the point is, what I'm saying is that there are so many things that that are, that are coming forward today that we need to know about the mind and the brain, neuroplasticity, neurogenesis. I mentioned the human microbiome. This is a whole new area of study that we haven't even looked at as social workers or the helping professions. Mm -hmm. Yet we know that the human microbiome and the different populations of microbes in our body can contribute significantly to our mental and physical health. There's also the contemplative practices that indigenous people are, have been so, um, I don't know, so invested in, in a good way for such a long period of time that they really need to return to because those cont contemplative practices help reshape the function and structure of the brain and they send the necessary signals to the rest of the body through all these different biochemical, you know, um, um, signaling uh, processes that change the body, change genetic uh, expression, which is the last piece. You know, we have not looked at, you know, enough at uh, epigenetic, the epigenetic effects of colonization on the bodies of indigenous people at the molecular levels. What's happened to indigenous people, I would argue, because of, uh, you know, things like missing and murdered indigenous women and people and children and, you know, in care. This is a, a f effective trauma. We can say, oh, that's so traumatic. But we have no idea what's happening at the, at the molecular genetic level. And we know these things are happening now that right. because that, you know, we're changing epigenetic mm -hmm. expression, meaning that, you know, in, in our chromosomes, something very basic is the chromosome, but so important are being... Um, uh, there's mutations happening in the chromosomes at the end of the chromosomes with the telomeres that help keep the chromosomes healthy. We want telomeres long. And, and I, I can almost, you know, 100% 100, 100 say that I know that the, 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 um, 
ceremonies, the uh, lifestyles, the foods that indigenous people ate, the, the social life that they lived probably kept their telomeres nice and long. And which meant, you know, well, everything we know about telomeres today at that mm -hmm. level is that they are um, um, a, a good of long life expectancy of how well a person is going to do. So this stuff is emerging very quickly. And I'm taking this stuff and, and going back and not using it because, I, you know, I can see people using this in one way, but a lot of people need to acknowledge, you know, the science and the genius of indigenous people as, as they do these studies, because a lot of times right. that's what writers do. They, and they talk about something like it's new. Well, indigenous people have been doing this for thousands of years over here, thousands of years, tens, you know, thousands of years. Right. And so I think that's the right. thing is to remember that there's so much knowledge in that culture and, and people have not been able to find that knowledge because they haven't looked deeply enough. Or the second thing is that they've been too prejudiced against that culture to believe that there was anything of value or worthwhile to discover in that. And that's the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I, and what a perfect way to, to wrap up our conversation. Cause I think that that is exactly uh, what, um, what we want to do with this podcast. And, and so when Terry and I had the vision of doing the podcast, one of the things that we recognized is, and one of the things I recognize you know, teaching full time is that we oftentimes will put forward um, peer reviewed academic journals as a source of knowledge. And, um, with this podcast, what we really wanted to do was put our indigenous voices, indigenous storytelling, auditory, you know, resource, quote unquote, at the forefront of education. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, you know, in academia, we know the value of, you know, of peer reviewed academic journals, we don't need to, you know, and, and not to say <laughs> that those things aren't valuable. Uh, but this type of storytelling and this type of work and the way in which we have these conversations is just as important uh, to ensure that this is at the forefront. So we really thank you for um, for sharing with us, for sharing your knowledge and your stories. Mm -hmm. um, and we're so excited about this. Like <laughs> Terry and I have been smiling the whole time. So we're, we're uh, definitely, our brains are changing. Um, and so we're so thankful, uh, Michael. Um, and, and thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. Uh, and we're so excited to get this published um, because I think that, again, this is an episode that we, uh, are really excited to get out to the community. So we thank you very much uh, for your time. Uh, we know that you're busy and we know that uh, you've, you've got uh, a lot of work to do as well. And well, so we want to thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. And um, I'll, uh, I'll remember the, you two aunties in my, when, when I'm, uh... <laughs> got to quote the aunties in my next, my next article. So of course. Yeah. Yeah. But, th but I, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank been a pleasure. You, <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Thank you. We'll talk soon. All right. Two Crees in a pod.